Hello and welcome to this special holiday edition of Books in the Biz. We are not on Thursday this week because I I don't know how many people are going to watch today, Rich, but I'm pretty sure when it comes to Thanksgiving, we're probably going to get beat out by a turkey. I don't think anyone's going to pay attention to us on Thursday at noon. So, um, yeah, well, welcome. Thanks for coming, Rich. Absolutely. Anytime. You know, I love well, Books in the Biz. This, I'm glad you showed up because, again, I give bad <laughs> tax advice and, and really kind of needed you here to, to help fill this out. So um, if you haven't caught uh, what we posted about, we have been talking about tax planning. And I can kind of give a little bit of the background of why we're talking about this today, because I get tons of questions about tax planning. Do you see accountant in my name anywhere at all? No, it's not there. However, I do know enough to be dangerous. I do know some places to look, and I always defer to my accountant experts to then work out the details on that. But um, And that is one thing that we also want to share today is, uh, Rich, you're going to be going over a number of questions. And while we are sharing these questions, we're sharing them in very broad terms. Yes. And so the, the legal disclaimer here is you always need to talk to a professional because there are might be some details that we aren't discussing here that affect you. You don't want an audit. So we're just giving you the warning on that. Yeah. If you do have questions, Rich, how can they get a hold of you? Best way is send me an email at rveltry at veltrygroup.com. There you go. Um, the, also, the other reason why we're doing this is because people ask me tax questions. What does that tell me? Tells me there's a lot of tax accountants that just don't do this. They don't uh, dig into somebody's taxes and find out maybe where there are some tax events that might lessen their tax burden. Mm -hmm. I have known this through many accountants that I've worked with that uh, they just do the accounting part. They do the taxes and, you know, you pay a set fee for that and they just cover the basics. If, if there's some details in there that aren't covered in their 50,000 page worksheet that they send you to fill out, there's that. Uh, Rich, I don't know. What's your experience on that side? No, it's very much the same. I think that there are a lot, look, there are a lot of accountants out there and there's a varying amount of experience. I really don't want to offend the, the guys that definitely do the, um, you know, that definitely do the proactive side of it. But I would have to say the majority of, especially the small business accountants, you know, they're, they're busy, they're, they're understaffed and, you know, re- reactive is more likely than proactive and i think yes. you really have to be proactive if you're if you're looking at our you know mugs this morning <laughs> then uh then you're thinking you know proactively you're thinking about what can i do now as opposed to what can i do when i actually go see my accountant for the one time of the year you know because yep. that's going to be after the year's over and that's not going to help you very much exactly and most people go oh crap i made too much money how do I lessen my tax burden on it? That's usually where I get the call because I'm working on the operation side. And for example, yeah. I have one client that we increased their revenue by 10% this year. And we got most of that to the bottom line. Well, guess what happens? Your tax liability increases. Now you got to figure out what to do with that. So there's a lot of things that uh, you have to consider. Considering it early, being proactive is better than waiting until the end of December. And I've also had a number of clients that it's December 31st, and they're buying a fleet of trucks. So there's that. But anyway, I wanted to share this with you. Happy Thanksgiving. As we said, this is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So if you see this at a later time, you'll wonder why everything's going to be Thanksgiving themed today. Uh, but we wanted to definitely take some time to recognize the holiday. And hopefully, if you're traveling, you can listen along with us. So I put these questions in random order. So this is Stump the CFO. Um, <laughs> And Rich, is, you've had a chance to see all these questions, right? So while I'm stumping you, I've, I've given you some time to prepare, but uh, you won't see what's coming and when until we hit the slide. So yeah. that'll keep I, it a little bit of fun today and yeah. and keep you guessing a little bit. So yeah. here we go. Let's hit our first question. And our first question, <laughs> yep. come here. It's always so easy when it works and when it doesn't. There we go. All right. Um, so I forgot to put the name in this one, but this is Michelle P. So we got questions from you guys. Uh, everything came in the email or from clients. So if I missed something online, I apologize for that. You can definitely reach out to Rich and maybe can help me answer that. But um, Michelle asked this, I just launched my business. Should I form a corporation, an LLC, an S Corp? And if so, which one? 
Rich, which one's the best one to form and why? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're off okay. to a good start here. So yeah, so here we, <laughs> I so, have here we you. so here we go with the disclaimer, right? The the type of entity that you want to work out of depends on your personal or your business experience. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have a magic you know, hat and I open it up and say, okay, form one of these entities and this is the one today. Um, it, it comes down to what you're doing. So it's very, very important to go back to the disclaimer that you said a minute ago. You need to speak to someone specifically about your needs. I will give you the very general answer. If, if you start a business and you just are walking around and suddenly you have developed a product and you're going to start selling it because, you know, friends and family say this is fabulous. Let's start it. You know, essentially you have a business, you're collecting money as you sell these things. So you're a sole proprietor. OK, that's part of your personal everything. So the reason to form an entity is to draw a legal line. OK, I'm not a lawyer. But, but you're drawing a legal line between your personal assets and your business and your business assets. So the reason to form an entity is legal first. So the reason you should be talking to a legal professional or someone who can give you at least enough advice that says this is why these are the rules, um, that would be your first step. Okay. If you're going to pick an entity other than doing things yourself, okay. I believe 100% we're beyond the sole proprietor conversation. We don't need to put that on the slide. I would tell you almost every time, if you're going to run a business, separate your personal assets, put it into an entity, okay? So let's talk about what kinds of entities. Old school, you start a corporation, you have 100% legal limited liability. You have a, a wall, a corporate veil between you and your business. Okay, but a corporation is clunky. To use a technical <laughs> word, it's clunky. Okay, it is uh, old school, traditional. It is um, tax wise, it's double taxation. What that means is the corporation is going to pay its own taxes. And then when you try to get money out of the corporation, you're either going to have a salary or a dividend, and that's going to be also taxed. So you're taxed twice, once at the corporate level, once at your personal level. So nobody really likes that unless you're, you know, headed down the road of an IPO or going down things that we're not talking about today. You know, corporations more than likely not your answer. However, when you talk to your professionals, okay, the corporation rate right now is 21%. So there is a, there is a small fraction of people that I've actually said, have you thought about using a corporation in your you know, in your plan. I would say if you're just starting a business, which is what this question was, if you're starting a business, most likely no one's going to tell you to be a C corporation. Okay. No one's going to be, tell you to do that. They're going to tell you to go to LLC or S corp because the LLC or the S corp do not pay their own taxes. Okay. I'll repeat that one. Cause that's huge. LLC and S corp do not pay their own taxes. So double taxation is eliminated. What happens though is the income flows through to the owners. On an LLC, if you're a sole owner, all that income goes into you like you were a sole proprietor. You still have the, the block, you still have the legal block, but all of that money comes into you, okay? S-Corp, same thing, that all comes into you. S-Corp has slightly different rules than an LLC. So again, go and specifically talk to what you want uh, out of the company you know, what you want the company, how you want it to function. Um, so the question of which one specifically for Michelle P um, can't really answer it without a very specific set of questions to go over your particular situation, but understand that more than likely as a startup, you're going to be talking LLC or S Corp. And again, based on what, you know, your plan is for the business or where you're trying to head, you're probably going to be advised to do LLC or S Corp. And, you know, I would say more than likely, I'd give you the same advice. Um, I don't think there's anything else I can answer to this question, except, you know, if there's a follow up, if you want to really dive in a little more, I'm happy to do that with you. Again, just send me an email and we'll, and we'll finalize that. Yeah. I think just really quick here, if you could answer this, Rich, there is a hybrid. So there is LLC that's taxed as an S Corp. 
Correct. Can you correct. quickly explain what the difference to that might be? Sure. Um, so an S-Corp itself, it's not like I go into my state and I say, hey, guys, I want to start an S-Corp. Okay. What winds up happening, you start either a C-Corp or an LLC first. The S-Corp is simply an election with the IRS. It's a form mm -hmm. you fill out, Form 2553. So whether you're an LLC or a corporation, you file that 2553 form and the IRS approves you as an S-Corp. So you still can start off as a C-Corp or an LLC and make that election to become an S-Corp. Um, so the S-Corp is actually easier for someone to take away from you than a C-Corp or an LLC because those are the base those are the base filings. Those are the base formations. So an S-Corp is just an election. If I make a mistake and I bring in, say, an international shareholder, S-Corp has a rule that says you can't have an international shareholder. But mm -hmm. they don't warn you. They just say, well, you brought in an international shareholder, so your S-election is revoked. And the next thing you know, you're back to either being a C-Corp or an LLC. So again, way more of a spider web of how to answer this question yep. you know but that's that's kind of the big starting point of where you you know of where you really want to start diving in and saying which one do i want to be but i'll go back and just re reiterate that i think anyone starting out a business nowadays should put something between them and the business agree agree all right let's go on to question two brad b thank you brad uh, I've started a new business with a large with large capital expenditures on equipment. How much am I able to write off the first year? First year, gotta love it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all this money going out, and you think, "Wow, I'll be able to save a ton on taxes," and maybe, maybe not. Yeah, well, it's if you started a new business with large capital expenditures you should be able to write off up to, and I have to always look up the number, $1,160,000 of upfront cost on that equipment can be written off in 2023 for mm. equipment placed in service in 2023. Um, there are a couple other caveats or a couple other ways to look at this um, is there are actually two things going on at the same time. Um, the old school was what they called Section 179 because that was the code section that actually described what we're doing here, which was, you know, first time small business, you know, uh, right off of equipment in the first year. Um, section 179 has some limits to it. Um, there are you can only put in, I think, two point eight million dollars of equipment in any given year in order to get that right off of one point one million dollars. Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is you can't create a loss with Section 179. You mm -hmm. have to have business profit to cover it. So you can't go below zero. So Section 179 can actually have a limitation that says, you know, you can only take up to this amount and it stops. So in the past years, the government has been trying to give small businesses an advantage, trying to give them a little bit more um, uh of a runway. So they came up with what they called bonus depreciation. Bonus depreciation for a while there, especially during the pandemic, was 100% of all of your equipment that you put in in a given year could be written off on what they called bonus depreciation. So you never even talked about Section 179 anymore. And the big difference is that bonus depreciation can create a loss. So for people who are in an S Corp and are taking a salary, what you forget is, oh, I got my profit down to zero, but you took a salary. <laughs> so it's no longer zero. You still got it down to the, the, the salary that you took. But if you're trying to actually get any additional tax planning and get that loss to offset some of your salary and get some of your withholdings back, you couldn't do it with Section 179. You had to do it with bonus depreciation. So, so the quick answer to the question is, you know, $1.1 million or in that range. Okay. And the longer answer is there's an opportunity to use both bonus depreciation and section 179. Now, anybody who's listening to me is saying, wait a second, if I take hundred percent bonus depreciation, there's nothing left for section 179. What's this guy talking about? Well, key point for 2023, it's no longer hundred percent. 
It's mm. 80% in 2023, and it's dropping 20% every year going forward. So 2023, you kind of missed the boat on the bonus depreciation, okay? And if you're in a loss position, Section 179 can't do anything for you for the remaining 20%. So there's plenty to be done. On top of that, if you're looking at trying to put together something for 2024, I just told you it's going to be 60% on the bonus depreciation. But now you should figure out, does Section 179 still come into play for me so that I can get both? Good question. Good question. All right, let's go on to the next one. This one's from Bob D. Thank you, Bob. Uh, what is an S-corporation election and can I still make one for 2023? So this might be similar to one of the other questions that was already asked, is it? That's <coughs> ooh, that's correct. Um, so again, I said the other question was, you know, S-corp, C-corp, LLC, and I went, you know, rogue on my answer <laughs> um so the you know an s corp is just an election with the irs that takes an llc or a corp and says i want to be taxed as an s corp okay and again s corp has the flow through so it basically does not pay its own taxes it gives it to you now the s corp election has a deadline which is two and a half months after the beginning of a tax year so by March 15th, you have to file that 2553 and you want to have proof that you did it usually um, and get your S election in. So you can say for all of 2023, I am an escort. Most people do this and have this in their head already when they form the company. So they file the 2553 right away. Um, there are particular rules on how that deadline is structured, because what happens if I started my business on September 12th? What's the two and a half month rule go when I'm on September 12th? Um, but you follow those rules and typically it is two and a half months after the formation or where capital came in. So there's a specific deadline. If you miss it and the only reason you missed it was you just forgot or you have a re I believe you have to have a reasonable reason for why it happened. Okay. But we forgot. We've been acting all along like we're S-Corps. Our accounting shows that we're all by S-Corp, but we forgot to actually send the form in or the form got lost and was never filed. There's no confirmation it got done. Yes, you can still go back. I believe up to three years after formation, you can still go back and say, I have a problem because my S-Corp election was not filed. And therefore, even though I've been treating myself as an S-Corp, you know, everybody is telling me that it was never properly filed. We need to fix it. There are there is a procedure to go back and actually correct that mistake. And it's relatively straightforward. It's not overly cumbersome. You don't have to have an audit in order to get it done. So um, so, yes, Bob D, you can definitely go back and have an S election repaired. I'll call it repaired. Perfect. All right. Well, we have another Bob, Bob S. Which is better, cash versus cruel accounting? Uh, which is better for manufacturing or construction? So it's kind of like a double question here. So um, maybe you can explain just a little bit quickly on what's the difference between cash versus accrual and which one you would probably use for manufacturing or construction if you were in that. Okay. Double whammy. I need to get all my, I need to get my <laughs> breath in for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so let's start with the first part and make that the easy kind of explanation. Okay, um, you're allowed to run when you're, a, when you're a small business, you are allowed to run on either the cash or accrual method of accounting. Cash is exactly what it sounds like cash in, cash out, what's in the bottom line, that's your taxable income. It's just that simple. If the cash came in, it's taxable. If the cash went out, it's a tax deduction. Bottom line, times your tax rate, that's what you're going to pay. Relatively straightforward. Got it. Okay. Um, hard part is when somebody sends you a deposit on December 15th and it's a half a million dollars and you haven't even started the job yet, the IRS is going to say that's taxable. So mm -hmm. cash basis, you know, you want to watch what your cash is because December becomes very critical for you on whether or not you get hit with a surprise. Okay. 
if you have a very even keeled business, cash is just fine. There's no reason to worry about it. Just that's a great way to start. Accrual is what is prescribed in generally accepted accounting principles. Accrual is where you record your income as you bill. Okay. And the technical definition of it is you, you record your income as you earn it. So if I send Dan a bill for a million dollars, okay, I earned a million dollars because I did the work because I wouldn't send the bill unless I did the work. So that's the income side. On the deduction side, same kind of thing. If I get a bill in my hand and I haven't paid it yet, it's still a deduction mm. because I have incurred it. So if it's on my credit card or if, it's a, if I have an accounts payable to someone, that's deductible. So that's really the difference between cash and accrual. Accrual says, what did I bill and what do I owe? What's my net at that point? Cash says, what did I bring in? What did I send out? And that's my cash at that point. Okay, that's my So answer. again, it sounds like a lot of this stuff is right at the end of the year is where you would really notice the difference. So if you get, for example, there's a lot of end of year accounting maybe where you're invoicing a lot of people or you're you're collecting money maybe for work to start in January, but you haven't done that yet. That becomes taxable income um, where I would see it on the. So you brought up credit cards. Well, yeah. under cash accounting, if you haven't paid that credit card balance off, that transfers into when you would pay it off. So if you have a bunch of credit card expenses, you say, well, I'm going to pay this in, in mid January. Yeah. You technically have to push that expenditure into next year, correct? Um, I think. Well, I think this was one of those places that I shouldn't have mentioned credit card because it just kind of goes down <laughs> that rabbit hole. I think the cash basis, it actually looks at your bank account and your credit cards. Got so it. Okay. I think there's a caveat in the cash basis where, you know, we'd have to get really difficult detailed. But I think that there is somewhere where I remember seeing that cash includes credit cards when you're talking about the cash basis of accounting. Got it. So, okay. You know, I don't think that's a key difference, but, you know, I still look at it as, you know, if if you incur it, it's part of accrual. Got it. Perfect. Okay. Thank you for that answer. No, All right. We got John M. John, if I buy equipment before year end, can I write it all off in 2023? Again, this is kind of a sticky question, too, isn't it? Um, It goes right back to your Section 179. So it, it it's similar to the two questions ago where it was, what's the limit? So we go back to that million one on the equipment. We go back to um, the upper limit being how much have you bought? So I think if you get closer to that $3 million of equipment that you bought, you start to phase out what you can take in section 179. And again, you can't create a loss. So, but as far as, you know, if you buy equipment on December 31st and it's actually operational in, you know, because the definition is placed in service, if it's ready to go on December 31st, yes, you have an opportunity to take most of that, depending on the size and the numbers, you know, you have the opportunity to take that in 2023. Perfect. Hey, Dan, I think we skipped the second half of that other question, the one before. Did we? Okay, let me go back. I think so. So which is better for manufacturing or, or construction? Yeah, I, I didn't want to leave Bob S. hanging out there. I just thought about it. I'm like, hey, there was more. Um, so, I, I, again, this is a hard part of the question. So, that's like maybe we could have skipped it. <laughs> but I didn't want to leave Bob S. out and make him mad at me. So, um, you know, manufacturing, construction. Um, again, manufacturing, I think, from, from my standpoint, if you're in a full-blown manufacturing, I happen to like accrual. Okay. I know a lot of small businesses that look at me and go, what are you talking about? Why would I want to pay tax on bills that went out that I did not receive? But the, the corresponding expense side is where I tend to look and say, at the end of the year, on December 31st, okay, if your accounts receivable at the beginning of 2023 and at the end of 2023 is the same, it's the same as cash basis. Right. Because what wound up happening was you paid the same amount that you collected. Because accounts receivable changes. It goes up by the amount you bill. It goes down by the amount you collected. Right? So if accounts right. receivable is a million dollars at the beginning of the year and then a million dollars at the end of the year, cash and accrual are the same. Okay? What about the expense side? 
Okay. Do I have the opportunity to bring in a bill that I can deduct? Okay. In 2023, maybe I pay it in 2024. Maybe I have terms that allow me to pay it in 2024. I have more flexibility with an accrual than I do with cash. Cash mm-hmm. is cash. They're going to come in. They're just going to look at your bank account. They want to know anything else. But accrual gives me some flexibility to say, that's why I did that. Or I gave somebody an, a, a bonus. Accrued bonuses get a little bit sticky. Okay. But if I pay people bonuses by December 31st, because I'd rather pay my people than pay the IRS, then there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. And I can use the accrual method to kind of get a little bit more massage of what I want to actually show. Okay. And I, and I think that accrual basically shows you better what your business is actually doing um, as opposed to cash, which is going to have wild fluctuations month to month, you know, big project comes in, it changes everything. And now you're not looking at any kind of, you know, um, pattern. Mm -hmm. So Manufacturing, I would probably lean towards, I'd love to see you as a cruel because I really want to see that pattern. I want to know that everything is running the way it's supposed to. I don't want to see kind of these wild, you know, offsets. Construction has some of the same wild offsets, but it's got its own set of rules. And if you get over a certain number, which I can't remember if it's 5 million or 10 million, you actually have to use um, project accounting. You have to use um, percentage of completion. So, and that's IRS, that's gap, that's across the board. They're looking for you to use percentage of completion. You know, mm. I had a relatively small construction company that was trying to go for bonding and they had to show all their financials with percentage of completion. <laughs> so, you know, it's really not easy. So construction has its own set of rules. If you ever want to talk about it, Bob, ask, just give me a, give me a ring and we'll, we'll talk about what differences there are for construction. That's good, good. We can skip John here. We'll go to Jeff M. Why is first in, first out important with materials inventory? So I can give you some background on this. I was meeting with a client and he had brought up this first in, first out thing. Now that's something I typically, most of my clients don't have to deal with this, but he was wondering why do I, I essentially work with what we've bought first as, and we expend or use first versus, you know, whenever we get it, we use it. How, how can you explain that? Um, I think usually inventory is exactly what we said, that when when it comes in, it's available in the warehouse, you send somebody out to pick it, it comes into your manufacturing process. I assume this is manufacturing, Dan? Yes. Yep. Okay. So, you know, you go into your process, you pull out the, the piece that you want, and you put it into your process to become finished goods. Um, as far as the real reason for first in first out, I'm a, I'm a little hesitant to go down this road only because first in first out is typically a costing part of your inventory. Okay. So from a unit standpoint, right, you're going to go in and you're going to say, look, I brought in this unit to go in and actually be part of what I'm producing. So you brought it in, you put it right into the project. So you know, you really only have a couple different ways that you're going to do this, either by specific identification, which is that's the specific lot, that's the specific, that's the specific part that I want to go into this process. So you're going to pick it and it's going to go right in. Um, and if there were five of them, normally you're going to take the one that's slightly older. You know, you're going to be the one that first came in. Why? Because a lot of stuff has a shelf life, whether it's you know, and in my head, I start this example thinking machinery, but it could be liquid. It could be, you know, chemical. It could be, you know, something else that has a perishable, you know, date on it that can only be used beyond a certain date. So you want to take the first mm-hmm. one because it's got the shortest shelf life, no matter what. Out of the four, five, ten thousand that you have on your shelf, you're going to take the one that's not going to go bad. Because if it goes bad, you got to write it off. Right. And that you can't use it in your process, you know, and if you do, you got a whole different set of issues. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, and I think you, you pointed out the key indicator there, which is, does it have a shelf life? Now, in, in the case of this client, uh, most of his stuff is like stainless steel, aluminum, things like that. Um, there's obviously a much longer shelf life. It's not that it can't corrode or, or, you know, get destroyed in some way, but for the most part, um, you know, we're talking years instead of maybe weeks or months. So I think that's, that's the key indicator here is that f- whole first in first out ideas is, is like I look at in the food industry. You, you, 
get what you get first. That food is going to spoil if you don't use it right away. Right. So that also needs to be the first out. Totally agreed. I don't think there's anything anymore. There used to be a thing first in, first out versus last in, first out. Mm-hmm. Um, that used to be a tax item, and that became you know, somebody's crazy idea that you still did everything specific identification or first in first out. And then somebody went in and changed all the costings. So you were using your higher priced, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you were assuming you're in inflationary times. Yep. So you were deducting the higher end new stuff as opposed to deducting the price of the old stuff, but the old stuff was still leaving the warehouse. So I don't think anybody does that anymore. I haven't seen it in forever. Interesting. Cool. Let's go on to Mike. Mike F. Oh, this is an interesting question. I haven't had to deal with this one. Uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I worked overseas for an entire year. I shouldn't have to pay or uh, file or pay taxes in the U.S., correct? I'm guessing that's no. That's a no. (laughs) So, um, So the key answer to this question is the United States is a global tax jurisdiction. So the way United States looks at both businesses and personal, if you are a U.S. citizen, you owe a U.S. tax return. So that's first. As far as your income goes, the U.S. government doesn't care where you made your money. So if you made the money in Europe, okay, fine. U.S. says put it on your tax return. But nobody likes double taxation and nobody likes to pay here and in Europe. And most of the tax treaties actually say pretty much the same thing. You file in the U.S., but the U.S. will give you credit for any taxes that you pay in the other country. Mm. So you still have to file a tax return that says you made, you know, all this money. Okay. But then you go down to the bottom and it's a dollar for dollar credit on what you paid another jurisdiction for the taxes on the same money, okay? So that way the U.S. says, you're still a U.S. citizen, you're still filing here, we're still seeing what you're doing, but we're not gonna tax you if you're being taxed by Europe. Got it. So, so you, you live in fi- Germany and you get taxed, and let's say your tax is $10,000, and when you file in the U.S., your tax is $10,000, basically because you've already paid that tax in Germany, Yep. Your U.S. tax would then, in that particular instance, be zero. Yeah. And I think this is a key part where you also say, look, you know, this is very general advice and, you know, there are differences. So if Germany is charging you, you know, 20 percent and you would be making 30 percent here and you have a you know 10 percent differential and the U.S. says, hey, pay me for the, the, the changed rate, you know, talk to somebody specifically about that because, um there could be a, a, a treaty difference that says you don't have to pay that 10%. So you need to make sure that I gave you general rules, but go check the specific rules to the country you're working in because the treaty might say something slightly different. I'm giving you, again, very general rule. Great reminder. So in the end, we will disclaim you always need to talk to your accountant. If you don't have an accountant or looking at switching or need a CFO, talk to Rich. All right. Aaron A. Aaron has a successful business here. My business has grown by 10% and we've increased it, our profit significantly. As an S-Corp, how can I lower my taxable income and get into a lower tax bracket? Um, I should probably throw this disclaimer legally. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, these are good questions because they are very much kind of intertwined, right? They are, um, you know, you're an S-Corp. It's going to flow through to you personally. That puts you in a certain tax bracket. Um, You know, there are ways, depending on what that 10% translates to in dollars, there are ways to kind of look forward and think that if that continues, you know, do you want to, you know, change entity structure? Do you want to do all those higher level things? So we can talk about that at some point if, you know, if it gets to that kind of consistency point, you know, if it was just, oh, we did 10% because we did this giant project. Okay. Are there bonuses not yet paid? 
Are there other expenses related to that project that, you know, may have been in 2024? Can you pull them back into 2023? You know, are you cash basis? Are you accrual basis? So you want to think about those kind of things first. And then, you know, hopefully that would be enough to take you down into a lower tax bracket. But here's the thing I think I want to kind of throw in here. I don't know what kind of business this was, you know, but you can't buy yourself out of a tax liability. Um, so, cause some people think, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to spend this money and it'll save me on taxes, but you spent the money. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's the thing I want to kind of revi- remind people here. Cause I say it to my clients all the time. They're like, Oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the tax deduction for this, you know, $50,000 I'm going to throw out there, but you lost $50,000. Right. Okay. Don't forget that the tax deduction is the percentage. Okay. Your tax rate against what you spent. So you're spending $50,000 to get what? A third of that as a yeah. tax deduction, right? So so profit has to come first, taxes come second. You definitely want to make sure that if you can find something that you can do to minimize your tax burden, you don't want it to be something that you foolishly spend a ton of money on. Okay? What you want to do is the reason that depreciation contract, you know, conversation has been so prevalent is because you didn't have to spend that money. Right. What happens if you buy a million dollars of equipment on December 31st and you financed it and you're going to pay it over five years? Okay. Now you got a million dollar tax deduction. It didn't cost you anything. Mm-hmm. That's why the depreciation deduction is so interesting to so many people because so many people are talking about it because if there's a way that you can write it off, without it having to come out of your pocket, okay, that's a win. Now, eventually you have to pay off the equipment, right? But you're right. doing it over your terms, right? You're doing it over five years. You would have done that anyway. The difference is you're getting an upfront kind of tax deduction that allows you to use that money to hopefully build more of those you know, requirements to buy more equipment. If you can buy a million dollars of equipment every year because it's being you know, supported by all the profits you're getting out of it, I'll write it off for you every year. Right? That's like, yeah, that's, that's a, the good news is only when that stops. <laughs> yeah, when it stops, you have, you know, you need to be way out ahead of that. I don't want to talk to the person who's reactive and suddenly realizes it ends because I'm going to look like the bad guy when I turn around and say, you know, you don't have that write off this year and all of a sudden it hurts. Yeah. The other thing is with bonus depreciation going away, you know, being phased out over five years. Um, you know, it's, it's time to really think about, you know, how does this really impact what we're doing in in almost a five-year plan? You almost want to have people at that size that are looking to write off that much in a five-year tax plan. Exactly. And I'll, I'll, I can expand on this question a little bit because this, this is one from one of my clients, um, because her tax accountant, um, getting to the end of the year, she's like, okay, you're going to have all this profit. And she's like, well, okay, what do I do with it? And she pointed out something that you said, which is, well, can you give your employees bonuses? And she, she's generous anyway, and, and that's good. Don't get me wrong on that. But here's what I pointed out to her. What happens if or when you don't have these large profit swings anymore and you can't give your employees these big bonuses that now they've come to expect as part of their salary? somebody's going to be upset with you. Actually, a lot of somebody's are going to be upset with you. So you really have to consider when you're doing things like, well, we made all this money, let's share it with the employees. By all means, first of all, you should share with the people who helped you get to where you're at. So I'm I'm not saying don't do that. All I'm saying is just remember what you consistently pay people, that becomes in their mind part of their salary. And when that elected piece either shrinks or goes away, people get offended by that because they start counting on that extra money coming in. So this is where you really have to be careful where when you get these big profit swings that if you give it to the employees, they're going to start looking at that going, oh boy, I'm going to get another $10,000 bonus at the end of the year. And then all of a sudden, maybe profits aren't as good. And now they get two. Well, I guarantee if they were expecting 10, they were already budgeting 10 and possibly spending 10. So just keep that in mind because um, that's part of where this question came from. And Rich, I think you provided yeah. a good explanation of why you probably don't want to do all that. 
Yeah, and I agree. I mean, look, if it's a one-time thing and everybody's really explained this one-time thing, I can't, you know, I can't worry about them, you know, in two years saying, well, what happened to that one-time thing? Well, it was a one-time thing. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. This but is they will. Straightforward. No, they I know will. they will. You know, the other <laughs> thing is, but again, it's it's also, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a proactive thing. Like you have to look at it from a, if we can continue to do this and we continue to build this and the profit's going to be sustainable, can we do something with bonuses? Here, here's another alternative, right? And that's why this whole conversation really comes down to it's an individual conversation, even though we're talking general rule. Um, you know, I've seen it where in some people that are really proactive and they run a business and they have profits and they have young kids, they find a way to give their kids some of the money, get them to come in on mm. a Sunday and, or Saturday and sweep the room. And, and, you know, it stays within the family, but, you know, you could put money into a salary. I always said, you know, if you put money into your kid's salary and they're making a salary, they can contribute that to a retirement plan. Mm -hmm. So if you got a really young kid and you put them into a retirement plan with a couple grand, you know, just to save some taxes, that kid's going to be a millionaire, <laughs> depending <laughs> on how old they are, right? But they're yep. starting something that's a heck of a lot younger than I would have started anything. So, you know, it becomes one of those things where it's time to be creative. You know, to be honest, the individual tax rules have gotten very simple. They're very narrow, you know, unless you're dealing with very obscure, you know, um, sections of the code that allow certain people certain things. Um, you know, other than that, the rest of us are kind of in a very narrow silo for what we can actually do from our taxes. Yeah. You know, businesses are one of the only places you can really do anything creative. So you know, be creative, think of how you're going to get to next year or two years and, you know, create something that actually works for you, saves some taxes and builds wealth over the, over the long haul. Yep. I think the key there is this is why it's so important to be proactive in your business uh, with your employees, with your family mm -hmm. to minimize the tax burden. And also, as you pointed out, be able to set aside some assets that will appreciate in value and, and, Put your family in a good position. Let's go on to the next one. Peter S. If I buy a car before year end, can I write that off in 2023? I, I am hearing correctly that there is a difference around SUVs that weigh more than 6,000 pounds. So this, again, I know ties into Section 179. Um, how is this maybe different from some of the other questions that have already been asked around this? Okay, I, this one I definitely want to have my cheat sheet in front of me <laughs> because cars are unique. Um, so, yes, you still have an opportunity to write off exactly in the same way we already talked about Section 179 and bonus depreciation. Um, for the most part, most people are looking at it from a bonus depreciation standpoint to start. If the automobile is a specific, what they call luxury automobile, which is a car over $61,000 in value on purchase price, you know, on which they're pretty much all over $61,000. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much in the last year, especially. Yes, you're over 61. Um, I don't think you can get a bicycle for under 61. Um, anyway, sorry, that was a joke. <laughs> um, but you, there are limits, okay? Because it's a passenger auto and everybody kind of looks at it as this is not entirely, uh, you know, you can't say it's entirely business related. You're always going to have something that's, you know, so they put limits on it because they can't go after everyone for every car in the United States. <laughs> so, you know, they've put limits on what you can actually deduct on an automobile. Um, I believe it's code section 280F. So not that I like to quote code sections, but I believe it's 280F that basically says if you buy an automobile, you have upper end limits. Those limits for 2023 start at $12,200. If you take bonus depreciation, then it's $20,200 that you can get in the first year. You cannot get to 100% of the write-off on an automobile uh, in 2023. However, here comes the second part of your question. 
<laughs> SUVs, cars, trucks that are over 6,000 pounds are exempt from 280F. So the key reason why so many people are so interested in the SUVs are that $20,200 upper limit on what you can write off is gone if you buy an SUV that's over 6,000 pounds. Now, be careful because the car that you think is 6,000 pounds may not be 6,000 pounds. It is GVWR, which is published in your car. Okay, so if you buy a car, look at the little sticker that's on the inside of the and door. And just full, so we're clear, GVWR is Gross Vehicle Weight Rating. Thank you. You're welcome. I, <laughs> I am the worst. <laughs> I am I am the worst when it comes to using acronyms. So, <laughs> so GVWR usually means that they've rated the car for how much the car actually weighs, plus the passengers and the uh, towing or, or capacity for storage in the back. You know, so an yeah. SUV that has that they, the GW the GVW is one thing, and GVWR is another. So you want to make sure you're looking at GVWR. Um, if it's over 6,000 pounds, you're good. Okay. But you want to look, okay. One of the guys that uh, I was talking to actually looked at, I think a Volkswagen Atlas and it came out at 5,970 <laughs> and he was ready to buy it, but he said, Close, but no cigar. <laughs> talk about a big difference, right? Yep. So you're looking, and I was very specific with him. I said, look, you're looking at $20,200 because you're under that $6,000 number. You're not going to be able to defend the fact that you took it at $6,000 and it turns out, oops, it's not $6,000. Okay? It's a very specific rule. It's been there for years now that the SUV is over 6,000 pounds you know, is where you decide whether or not you're going to get $20,200 or a full write-off. So now if you see your contractors running around in nice one-ton dualies that are completely decked out, you now know why. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is really what they're doing. They're loading those trucks up to get the maximum yeah. value out of them. And while it might be for business pur purposes, let's face it, it's a lot comfortable to drive in a truck with nice leather bucket seats, heated and cooled, than bench cloth seats. Yeah. So typically you see the owner running around in a really nice vehicle and the workers are kind of running around in the work trucks. Um, yeah, and, and I'll throw in one more caveat just to be careful. You know, this doesn't mean you can do it every year. Okay, agreed. If you take your truck and you buy it on December 31st and it's all great, you take your tax deduction, and then next year you want to trade it in to get another one, your basis on the first one is zero. You know, it's not I had a $60,000 truck and now I'm going to go buy another $60,000 truck. Well, the first one's gone, it's zero. Yep. So, you're going to pick up gain on your trade-in. So, you know, be careful. <laughs> you know, be careful. The only difference there would be if you have a fleet or you're growing a fleet. Because yeah. then there's not the trade-in differential there to, to deal with. But you are yeah. correct. You can't trade in that truck every year and expect correct. to get the, the savings off of it. Cool. Let's go on to the next one. Russ M. Okay. This is one that both you and I... Uh, were asked, uh, we have an S corporation and we take owner's draws. We are, as we plan on selling the business in the, in the next couple of years, is it better to take a larger salary instead of the draw? Yeah, this is a, this is definitely something that's not only been spoken to us by Russ M. It's also been a very heavy topic of conversation for a long time. The, the background behind the conversation is that an S-Corp requires you as an owner okay, to take a reasonable compensation. Literally, that is the rule, reasonable compensation. There's no definition of what reasonable compensation is, <laughs> zero, none. It is one of those areas that if they decide that you, know, you are not taking reasonable compensation, how are you going to defend it? Like there's, it's very difficult. So you want to be somewhat careful, but I'll explain kind of what the difference is. An S corp, okay. The income we talked about in one of the other questions was that the income flows through to you. Okay. So you can take that salary out and then the amount that flows to you is a little less. So what a lot of people do is they say, well, reasonable compensation is $10,000. So they take a really, really small salary. That way they can say, I took compensation and then they take a million dollars as, as draws. 
Okay. How is that equitable? Like how, and I'm looking at it from, if I was the IRS, how would I look at it? I would say, wait a minute, this guy's doing, you know, financial services. It's a half a million dollar position he's sitting in, right? And he's taking a $10,000 salary. Like that's where you get into trouble because that's just blatant, you know, you're taking less salary. The yeah. IRS's particular issue is that because the S Corp is not subject to self-employment tax, they're not getting Social Security and Medicare, okay? Yep. So they're not collecting into the pool that they need to take care of the people that they've promised to take care of. Your $10,000 salary versus your draws, which are not self-employment tax, you know, the $10,000 is not reasonable to them. They want you to have a higher number, okay? Yep. So from a tax standpoint, people are trying to lower their self-employment tax, which is Social Security, Medicare. So they take a lower salary. Take a reasonable salary, okay? Make it make sense and then you never have an issue, okay? If everybody in your industry is making, you know, $100,000, take the $100,000, okay? If you still make a half a million dollars above that, great. Take it all as draws. You're wearing two hats. You're wearing the operator and you're wearing the investor, okay? Investor could take the draws. The operator should be taking the salary. Okay. Now, that, that's, I think, a key point to this question here. When we were asked this question, um, in this case, it was less concerning about taxes. It was more concerning about value of the company. Mm -hmm. I know that's not directly a tax question, though it does impact that some. Mm -hmm. But um, so if I'm looking at selling my company and I've been taking a salary plus a draw, does that affect the value of the business because of that? We're taking a, a chunk of that as a draw. The, the draw, don't forget that the draw is a, uh, it's a withdrawal from retained earnings. It's from the balance sheet. So right. it's not, a draw is not a taxable event. It's not a tax deduction. It's basically money's coming out of the company and going to you. You're paying tax on the flow through income, okay, which is where that retained earnings came from. So the draw is kind of irrelevant, all right? Got it. The salary part Anybody who's going to buy the business is going to readjust the salary that you're taking, whether it's too low or too high. And they're going to say, if I put somebody in there who's got to do that job, what is it going to cost me? So they're going to adjust that salary anyway. So the decision on what to pay yourself out is not necessarily a, a sale question. Okay. It's, mm -hmm. It is more of a tax question, right? But it's, it's very good. It's a very good question because, yes, when you get to the selling point, you have to understand that the bottom line of what you're making in that company is affected by what you were paid. And the bottom line is what they're using to value the company. So if you at the bottom line, you took a $100,000 salary, there was $100,000 profit at the bottom line. They're saying, I'm going to pay you a half a million dollars just to throw a round number out five times your your earnings. OK. But that would give them a $500,000 number. But then they look at what you got paid. Did you get paid enough? If you weren't taking a big enough salary, they take that $500,000 and they bring it down a bit and say, I got to pay somebody else more because you were taking a beneficial salary. So your business is not worth a half million. It's worth four fifty, dollars whatever number, right? So, yeah. so that's where the key question becomes almost two-parted. The first part is, yes, you want to optimize your taxes as best you can. You don't want to overpay. You know, you don't want to overpay into Social Security and Medicare. Um, it just doesn't make sense to do that. So I agree. You try to find a salary that's reasonable, you know, enough. And then you take the rest as draws. You take advantage of the way that the you know code is actually written and supposed to be handled. Um, but at the same time, again, you know, Russ's question is, is great because you really do want to understand that fact for what your valuation is going to be when you sell it. Cool. Very good. All right. Next one, James F. Going to be doing profit sharing. So I think this is something new that he's doing in his company. Uh, rather play the, pay the employees than the taxes. So this kind of relates to the, a couple questions ago. Um, placing my money in 401ks. Question, is that a good strategy? And what do I do with the folks that don't have a 401k? Okay. So this, I'm, I'm hesitating because of terminology and I hesitated when I first read the question because I did see this one earlier and I said, 
Okay, how do I answer this question? Um, terminology, so, I bring up terminology because 401ks is a very specific kind of defined contribution plan. What that right. says is if the employee makes $100, he can put up to a certain amount of money and he can defer his own money into that 401k. And then you have a decision whether or not you match it or whether you you know, provide additional profit sharing comp compensation on it. Um, but it's a very specific plan for the company. So every employee either opts in or opts out. So I can't do anything for one that I don't do for another. So the 401k is the part that kind of throws me off for the question, right? Because it's a, it's a company level question as opposed to the individual's. Right. Okay. Right. So, so I can't say, okay, everybody go who's going to be in the 401k, do it over here. And if you're not in the 401k, we're going to do this over here. Yeah. Okay. So I believe that's not even tax law. I think that's ERISA. I think that's the, you know, employment, retirement, mm -hmm. and retirement, income security, whatever. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I have, I have a, an employment, I have an employment lawyer on speed dial. <laughs> so when it comes down to that, it's like, boop. Eric, let's go. We need to go. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the, the 401k, again, being that it is at uh, a company level, I hesitate to answer that question very, very specifically. However, let's go down the road just a little bit further to try to help James and give him some guidance on where he can go. Um, if you haven't set up the 401k yet, talk to an investment. They do have one set up. They do. I think the issue, the big issue that he's seeing is, okay, we've been really profitable this year. Um, I'm, I want to put more in my retirement. I also want to reward the employees for how well we've done and put it in their retirement. But not all their employees opted into the 401k. So then the question is, well, what do I do for the employees that didn't opt in? And based on what I'm hearing you say is, well, if you opted out of the 401k, it's kind of like you lose out on this benefit. You can't do an either or, can you? Well, I, I really appreciate the fact that, that there was a little bit of extra context there. Um, I'm going to tell James F. the first person you should call is your investment guy. Whoever is handling the administration of your, of your plan, okay, call that person. And the reason I say that is I have seen a lot of creativity around what you can do with an existing 401k. Okay, depending on a lot of times someone will put you in a 401k. That's just what they call a prototype plan. What that means is the investment provider or the investment person who's handling the whole thing for you has already gotten it approved by the IRS. Okay, so the confines of the 401k have already been approved. That does not mean it can't be amended. It does not mean that you can't roll over into another 401k that's a little bit more robust treat something that you know you want to share with the employees that even say they opt out okay i have mm -hmm. seen it where some employer says i really want people to do it this person opted out of 401k they don't make as much money but i want them to benefit so you can still put money into an account for that person even though they're not going to put their own money in got it okay. so so it, so they can actually put a profit sharing layer on top sometimes that would allow you to cover everybody, even if they don't join. The key here on everything related to employment retirement um, is that you wanna make sure it's fair and equitable. So you can't say, well, that person's out and I'm gonna give these other people 3% extra bonus because you know I wanna get some more money out and those guys are all, they, they signed off, so they, you know, right. they're okay. That's not how it works. But you can put a layer over it that says, I know you don't wanna put your own money into the 401k or participate, I'm putting money in for you anyway. Okay. No one's going to balk at getting extra money in there. Okay. <laughs> other than they can't use it right now. Yeah. Other than they can't use it right now. Okay. But yes, you can definitely do something like that. As far as the other part of the question, you know, if there, there are also ways to structure a 401k that allows you to put contributions in, in excess for people who are older. So, at, you know, a lot of times you think the founder is usually the guy that's been with the company forever. Right. So, uh, depending, like just kind of throwing out some scenarios here, but someone who's been there a long time is technically older than the 20 year old they hired out of college. Okay. There are ways to structure the 401k contribution to, you know, push more money towards the people who are closer to retirement 
okay? And don't have as much runway <clears throat> until they're gonna get to that point where they actually execute on getting out. <clears throat> so there yeah. are ways to actually make it sort of stepped. So, you know, but again, it has to be stepped so that later on the younger people, as they get older, they also still, you know, grow and can put more in, you know, as they get older. Very good. All right. Uh, when the S, so this is the last question we have. Uh, how are economists able to forecast inventory cycles? I put this one last because I figured this one would really stump you. And then from there, how do they... <laughs> <laughs> how do they see them happening? So who are these people with the magic crystal balls and how do they know what inventory cycles are going up or going down? Uh, economics. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this is less of a tax question, more of an economics question. Yeah. I, what I've seen is I think we're, we're definitely talking about, you know, bigger companies versus smaller companies. I hate to say the smaller companies a lot more, there's a lot more gut reaction on smaller companies than are on bigger companies that are trying to really control what's going on in multiple products, multiple, you know, inventory levels, multiple materials levels. You know, um, I think though, they're basically the bigger companies are listening to people who are saying this is what's going on globally. And someone out there, whether it's actuarial or um, you know, these things are 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 published and tracked. Um Unfortunately for me, I always look at it as they're still using old data. <laughs> they're still using <laughs> stuff that's already happened to predict what is coming. And maybe they're, they're probably throwing in some current variables to say, well, you know, in the past when we've hit this level, it's been, you know, a percentage, this whatever percentage it is of, you know, these things, you know, follow, you know, a pattern. So my answer really comes down to it's pattern. It's pattern basis. It's what's happened in the past. What levels can we expect? You know, there's always an inherent danger in that because it's like predicting the weather. You know, I mean, I can tell you tomorrow it's going to rain. And when it doesn't, you know, if I was a weather guy, you know, I wouldn't get in trouble. But being that I'm not a weather guy, I get in big trouble. You know, only the weather guys get get away with not predicting, you know, the actual weather. So um, I think. I'm getting to kind of a silly answer here, but I, I think the, the core really comes down to the fact that they're they're getting published numbers based on patterns. And those published numbers come from, I think, as you pointed out, publicly traded companies, large corporations that are required to share their information openly, uh, where mom and pop businesses, it's a gut check or maybe, maybe there's a a polling or a survey company that's calling these smaller businesses and, and kind of getting a read of the room. Mm -hmm. But it really does come down to, you know, it's what you see from General Motors or IBM or, you know, uh, a large steel manufacturer is going to give you more information than, um, you know, mom and pop shop down the road. Uh, I also like what else you pointed out, which is um, a lot of this stuff is you know, probably six months to a year out of date. This is why we see the Fed making adjustments to interest rates. It's like, well, we already seem to be past that point. Why do you keep raising interest rates? And again, it's because they're looking backwards and trying to make an educated guess on what to do going forwards, which usually means they they swing too far one way or the other. And it always happens well after when they should have made that decision. In the first place. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And it's, and you know, I have an example. I mean, I had a company that had a, a, a warehouse full of inventory and, you know, smaller company, $3 million revenue, you know, had a warehouse full of, you know, chemical inventory and <clears throat> 2007 came along and they, you know, didn't realize that everybody was pulling back their orders because they had already predicted 2008. They already predicted the banking crisis and therefore, you know, everybody figured they're going to slow down on production my company was still bringing in inventory, you know, <laughs> until until we saw it was actually climbing and saying, why do we have so much inventory? You know, because our gut said, just keep going. And we actually asked all our clients to give us forecasts. And the banking crisis happened after the forecasts were in. Mm. So they were missing their forecasts. So it, it it's for the smaller company, it's a little tougher to, to really understand what's going on. And there's your first in, first out situation. <laughs> Absolutely. Luckily, All right. 
Yeah. <laughs> Didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, well, you answered plenty of questions. I think you answered them in quite good detail. I know the people that uh, were asking these questions are going to appreciate the, the responses you gave them. So thank you for your time on this, Rich. Um, we need to do this again. Maybe next time uh, around Christmas time, maybe I'll take a, a turn where you can try and stump me with a bunch of questions and see how I answer them. Mine are, are less tax code related. So uh, there's that. Um, but beyond that, Love again, that thank you for uh, joining us for this pre-Thanksgiving holiday festival. Uh, hope the turkeys and everything made you a little hungry for tomorrow and uh, watch some good football. I don't know if there'll be any good football on. I'm a Packer fan, so I'm, I'm worried about what Detroit is going to do to my team tomorrow after I've seen them play the last couple of weeks, but we'll see how it goes. Either way, I'm cooking a lot of turkey. It's in the brine right now. It goes in the smoker tomorrow morning, and uh, I will be fat and happy by the end of the day. How about you, Rich? What are you doing? Uh, we're going out to eat this time. <laughs> <laughs> you are a smart, smart man. Well, anyway, guys, uh, thank you for taking the time. If you did join us today, if you did not, you can definitely catch the uh, the replay of this. Uh, we're just like football. We have the replay going on. So you, you can see this on YouTube. Uh, you probably can watch it again on Facebook and, and LinkedIn if you can find the link. Uh, we will also have the recording on booksinbiz.com, B-O-O-K-S, letter N-B-I-Z.com. Uh, if you do have any questions or anything here we didn't answer, Rich, how do they get a hold of you again? Send me a quick email at rvaltry at valtrygroup.com. If you don't want to talk to him, you can always talk to me. My name is Dan Paulson. You can reach me at danpaulsonletsgo.com. And until we talk to you next week, have a very great and safe Thanksgiving. And enjoy your holidays. Take care, Rich. All right. Take care.